The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today. And we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow if you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here is Dave Goldberg. Good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. My name is Dave Goldberg, and I'm your show host. And Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education, bigbeacon.org. And in every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. Today, we're joined by Daniel Pianco, Managing Director of University Ventures, a leading higher education investment fund. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Good to have you with us. And, and uh, Daniel, I became aware of uh, University Ventures a few years ago in 2012, I think it was, when you were in the process of uh, starting something called uh, New Engineering University. And I recall that you were looking at Olin College and other transformative models at the time. I think we're all grateful for your work in higher education transformation and your, your calls for changes in higher ed funding and philanthropy. My pleasure. I think it's an exciting and important topic and glad to be on your show and for all that you do in contributing to this revolution as well. Well, well thanks for that. And, um, and I want to dig into um, some of your calls for change and some of the things that you've been changing. But um, you know, as I look through your bio, you've had a distinguished career as an investment banker, um, got an MBA and a master's of education from Stanford. And, and now you're uh, heading a particularly innovative uh, venture fund. But let's uh, turn the clock back. And I'm just curious, what, what were some of the early influences in your life as a young man that led you down this um, different path? Uh, you know, that's, a, that's a, always a hard question to answer. You never know what path you're going to take. One of the formative experiences as I thought about that was uh, at Stanford, uh, where I went for business school, has a very unique essay question for when you uh, apply to the business school. And they ask you two questions. One, why do you want to go to Stanford? And two, what's important to you and why? And that question, when I was just at sort of the, the growth stage of my career, really forced me to go back and think about what was important to me and why. Uh, and I wrote about community and helping to build and create and formulate community. And for me, uh, my childhood was all about community. I, I lived in, a, in New York City, but in a very compact area where my parents were very involved in communal organizations. Uh, my father was president of one. My mother founded and, and, and ran uh, uh, another communal organization. Uh, and 
And that sort of interspersed with my father, who became a lawyer, really actually started off as a teacher during the Vietnam War. And he talked almost uh, more about his time creating a new classroom for gifted children in this New York City public school than almost anything else in his career. And I think back to the influences, hearing him talk about how important that was to him, coupled with this sense of community that I grew up with, I I think really drove me to um, pursue the career path that I've pursued. And it's interesting, my brother uh, became a, a Ph.D. tenured faculty member um, and I do what I do, and we both found our way to education. I think a lot because our parents really talked about education as being so critical to who we were uh, and where where we would end up. And so I think those the, the, the intersection of communal and education piece really drove me, and I think to a large extent my brother, to a very similar career path. Oh, beautiful. And, you know, and as I work as a leadership coach with people, it's interesting how these early stories are often so formative and either uh, the obstacles or the opportunities in them or the things that un- unfold in our lives. And then, and so as you're talking about education, you're talking about community, you're talking about these early influences from your parents. Um, and and uh, that combo of a master's in business administration and master's in education is, is a little different or unusual. So how did, how did that come about? Well, I started off as, when I graduated from college, I became an investment banker in education. Uh, sorry, I became an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. Um, and after I did my, my uh, in the process of my two years, uh, and I realized pretty early on that I wanted to do something different. I didn't want to become an investment banker for the rest of my life. It, it was not uh, my goal to help big, I was in the financial institutions group, my goal in life was not to help big banks buy and sell other big banks. Uh, and so I really wanted to do something that was more socially responsible, and I think you know, hearing uh, my parents' voice around the importance of community and, and giving back, uh, I wanted to, to save the world. Uh, and I ended up uh, in my own way, and I realized uh, as, uh, in retrospect how crazy that concept was, but at the time as a a very idealistic uh, 22, 23, 24-year-old. That's how I thought about it. And I ended up uh, joining a small education company that was building charter schools uh, throughout the United States. And I joined before any schools were open. Um, And uh, my first job, uh, the the CEO of the business, uh, handed me his credit card and said, go to Home Depot, get some hammer nails, and go up to Harlem and start building a school. And, and by that, I mean literally building a school. Yeah. And, and that whole experience really uh, opened my eyes to this intersection between business and education. We grew to 11 schools in about two years and sold the business uh, at, a, at a good uh, profit. And I realized that there was this ability to do well while doing good. And there was a very influential mentor I had uh, at that company. It's called Learn Now. And the mentor was a guy named Jim Shelton. And you may know Jim Shelton because he eventually became a senior program officer at the Gates Foundation focused on education. Uh, he became, I believe, deputy undersecretary of education um, and, and, and is now at 2U, which is a company we may talk about later. And he had done this joint master's in education and MBA program at Stanford, which is really a unique program. It's one of the only ones out there. 
And Jim, you know, basically sat me down and said, this is the program you should do, and walked me through the process. And, and for me, uh, having Jim's mentorship to show me what a combination like that could be was, was amazing. Um, and then, you know, the, the program really tries to combine uh, the best from the business school and the best from the education school. And what's interesting now with all the ed tech investing, you know, venture capitalists are attending the classrooms now, which uh, was not happening when I went through the program. Again, another fascinating story and one of, you know, mentorship and, and uh, a, a formative uh, early work experience. So from, um, you know, from an investment banking experience and, and what were some of the, you know, so and you knew that that wasn't what you wanted to do and yet you're doing it, but in this other domain. So what were some of the takeaway skills that you walked away from Goldman Sachs with? Well, I, I think Goldman Sachs was, you know, quite frankly, the best learning experience any young professional could ask for who's interested in business. It was a, a phenomenal experience. I learned more in those two years than I think I have learned in any two-year period before or since. Um, it, they teach you um, a tremendous amount about the capital markets and how the capital markets intersect with business. And that skill set is highly transferable. But it's not just that capital market skill set. It's also an attention to detail. Um, I, you know, there, When you're presenting, even as a junior person, presenting to CEOs of Fortune 500 companies or, or their teams, um, the work product that gets produced just has to be so high quality that I think for me one of the things I, I walked away from was uh, the, the, the besides the actual learnings was what quality output looked like mm-hmm. and in quality output in, at a place like Goldman Sachs and, and the level of um, effort and uh, quite frankly perfectionism um, they were better than any you know editor I'd ever worked with when I was on a student newspaper. Better than any uh, faculty member I'd ever worked with at, at picking out uh, issues, criticisms, concerns, um, and just the high quality of work product is probably what I came away most from Goldman. Yeah, nice. And so, okay, so the early work experience in Goldman Sachs and the educational work experience and the program at Stanford. So then um, how did that all lead to university ventures? What's the path from there? So I worked for, after that, I worked for a series of investment firms folk, and trying to, to focus on education. And I realized that in order to build my dream of, you know, this dream I was, was built, was creating around building these um, uh, what the future of the university or what the future schools would look like was impossible to do as part of a larger organization, and I really had to uh, go off on my own, which I did in, in 2008, 2009. Um, and what really led to University Ventures was we I had a few partners who I'd worked with over a long period of time, and, and I think we realized that the University of the University of Phoenix model wasn't the right model for this intersection between private capital and public good. Mm-hmm. That you know the butts in the, and and a lot of this has been reported at this point. But I remember giving a speech to an industry gathering where I you know said to a bunch of people who worked at places like University of Phoenix, and I said, 
you know, this model is broken and we all need to fix it. Why don't we drop our prices 30%? Everyone will still be profitable. Uh, and, you know, it'll be a, a much better service for uh, the students and for society at large. And, and I was kind of uh, laughed out of the room. <laughs> Lo and behold, a year or two later, you know, the Senate, you know, President Obama gets elected, uh, the Senate uh, and, and the White House start focusing on the um, um, problems in the traditional for-profit higher education world. Yes. Yeah. And, and they were right. Uh, you know, there, there were issues. There are issues. And, you know, I think we envision creating university ventures as uh, uh, I don't want to say, and an, an, sort of the next evolution um, that understood that there was a role for private capital, but also a role for traditions of education, and also a role for uh, what makes universities great. You know, you think about it, uh, the university is uh, one of the oldest institutions we have, perhaps just slightly younger than the Catholic Church. And there's a reason it started out, you know, it, it, it dates back to 1088, uh, you know, as, uh, and, the, and, and the university in Bologna and has remained with us. The university is an incredible, power, co- powerful concept. Uh, and we felt like that history and that tradition was critical to combine with modern technology and modern ways of communicating information and learning. Um, and so we created University Ventures where... Uh, all of w- with this concept that we ended up calling innovation from within, that yep. the next generation of universities and sort of learning environments wasn't going to come from, you know, crazy Silicon Valley barbarians at the gate, nor was it going to come from the high table of tea with the dons at Oxford, but it was going to come through innovators, frankly, like you and the folks who created Olin College and some of the other guests you've had on the phone, who were going to thread this needle between, hey, you know, there's a better way of educating students with the traditions of, of universities. And that's really what led to the founding of University Ventures. Yeah, nice. And, and, and I think, you know, those of us that are, you know, are, can be fairly critical of, of the universities that some of us have been a part of. And, and yet there, I think there is a love of those traditions that sort of animates a lot of the work it's like we we'd like it to continue but there's a real there's a real threat out there and i guess you know we've had different people on the show and 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 uh, different people have, have uh, expressed different visions about you know why the university is at risk but you know why why is why does higher education uh traditional for-profit non-profit all different kinds why why does that need to be changed what are what are the forces driving driving change today in your, your mind? Well, I think it's important to start with what universities are focused on. And they're focused on what we call the four R's. Any time a president of a university calls you up and asks you for money or puts something in a guidebook, it's about four, the four R's. Research, real estate, rankings, and raw for sports. Nowhere in there is student outcomes and student learning. And so... What we think about a lot is, you know, students are increasingly focused on value for their degree, value for their credential, and not just economic value, but also intellectual value. And I think we need a Copernican revolution where, you know, rankings, you know, the fact that Harvard is Harvard is not the end-all, be-all for universities. 
the fact that if I go to a university and I learn something and I develop as a person and I can I can achieve my objectives, whether they're job-related, intellectual-related, or, or research-related, is what's most important. And so I think the fundamental, first to start with the problem, is universities are focused on those four R's and not focused on student outcomes. Now, why is that all coming to a head today? And, and I think that is um, almost the wrong question. Why has it taken so long after... You know, great institutions like newspapers get revolutionized by technology, uh, or the car industry with Uber. Why is the university um, still virtually uh, um, inured from those types of market forces that are sweeping so many other industries? And you know, I think it's frankly due to the strength of the university. But that is changing. And if you know, if you look at all the numbers about. Something like 40%, and that number may not be perfect, but something like 40% of colleges and universities aren't making their enrollment numbers right now. Yes. You know, you look at what's happening, and the marketplace is starting to react. They're saying, hey, I can get, you know, I can, I can get so much information on my phone. I can get um, lectures on iTunes University. I can take a MOOC. I can do a coding school. I can do something else. I don't have to go to my my mama's university, as one person once told me. And that's true, right? The technology is changing the perception of quality, LinkedIn badges, all these things are, you know, e-portfolios are starting to have an impact on the traditional university in a way they didn't you know, even three, four, five years ago. And what's uh, interesting, if you look at any industry that's gone through radical disruption, the rate, the pace of change generally starts really small, slowly, and then it accelerates. Yes. And I think we're at that start of that acceleration curve where, you know, your audience and others are starting to look around and say, wow, there's something happening here, and it is different, and we do need to adapt. We do need to adjust. Um, and that's exciting. Yes, it's, uh, we live in exciting times, and, and so uh, we're going to need to take a little bit of a break here, but hold that thought, and we're going to come back. Um, this is Big Beacon Radio with special guest Daniel Pianco, Managing Director of University Ventures, and in the next segment, I want to take a look at some of the twists and turns that occur in higher education venture investing. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Change is coming to higher education like a freight train, but transforming higher education is challenging, full of risks and opportunities for administrators and faculty members alike. If you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom, if you are starting a brand new school or academic program, or if you'd like to boost your own career, let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. Dave is a leading speaker, author, strategist, trainer, and coach with experience in helping bring successful change to both academic institutions and careers around the globe. To learn more, contact Dave Goldberg today at deg at 3joy.com or go to the 3 Joy Associates website at www.3joy.com today. Do you know how to tell a great story? In business, the stories you tell play a big role in your success. 
Whether you're trying to get more clients or influence people as a leader, storytelling will help you do it. Story Powered with Leanne Pico is here to help you activate your storytelling superpower to build a better business and achieve your goals and dreams. Story Powered can be heard live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need exactly when you need it so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. To find out more about our programs, be sure to visit our website at bigbeacon.org. That's bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with your host, Dave Goldberg, and our, our guest, Daniel Pianco, Managing Director of University uh, Ventures. Yeah, so that, that's a really uh, interesting perspective on, on the the forces we're facing and, and uh, where we are in the change process. Now, to get it down to us, you know, many of our listeners um, come from an academic background, not from an investing uh, or venture capital background. So um, it might be helpful to, to uh, uh, look at some particular things that you've worked on and the twists and turns in those. So we met in 2012 in connection with the founding of uh, New, Uni- New Engineering University, and that led to your involvement in, in – t- in something called uh, galvanized. So, um, uh, you know, what, what, when was the decision made to start NEU and, and what was your original motivation in, in, uh, in starting that? So, um, you know, for, first of all, um, when we started university ventures, we said, what are some areas where the traditional university could use, um, could change in a way that you could really revolutionize an environment for student outcomes and an experience for student outcomes and, and where, are the, where are changes happening. And, and engineering education was one of those that we identified. And so uh, when, when we started looking at uh, engineering education, we, uh, the first thing we did was we met with a lot of uh, probably 30, 40 engineering deans by phone or in person, um, traveled, visited a large number of schools, went to conferences, met with, um, you know, dozens of people. Um, And what we discovered, actually, and and this is where I think we met, David, was uh, some, some, some really unique things happening in engineering education that, uh, you know, you you have sort of the Jim Duderstadt quote, right? That we're uh, educating uh, 21st century engineers with a 20th century curriculum in 19th century space, or something like that. And 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 you had a reaction to that from a, a new generation of reformers. I think clustered around places like Olin and um, and University of Illinois, where you were a teacher. Um, and when, when you saw that kind of innovation coming from universities 
And then what we also saw at the same time was this sort of massive explosion of demand for and thirst for making things. Um, and, and we can all go to a Maker Fair today or read Maker Magazine, but it extended far beyond that to Code.org and some of these sort of uh, more Silicon Valley-inspired um, operations. So you had, on one hand, a, a fertile group of innovators from within, um, from the traditional university, coupled with this huge hunger and thirst for innovation um, from frankly, the people. And if you look at the numbers, we're educating the same number of engineers, roughly, that we did 30 years ago, despite the fact that technology has totally changed our world. So when we started looking at this, um, we started uh, in, by, by first meeting everybody, or as many people as we could. Clearly, we didn't meet everybody. Uh, and then um, trying to build a business plan and a case study for creating what we at the time called New Engineering University. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was sort of a, a pretty cathartic experience for it. Um, and, how, and this is what happens when you start, you know, running a, running a you know, trying to start something. And I think if you talk to the folks in the nonprofit world uh, that start something like an Olin, uh, your initial image isn't necessarily the, the ultimate form it takes. And in this case, we were really blessed to meet a gentleman named Jim Dieters, um, and he had started a, a group called Galvanize. Um, and I, I still remember the first conversation I had with him. Um, I was actually in Europe, and uh, um, you know, someone had said, "Hey, you got to talk to this guy, Jim. He's got the same vision for what the future of engineering education looks like." Um, and you know they and and I, I talked to Jim. I'm in Europe on late at night for me and early for him in Denver, and and I felt like it was a mind meld. I felt like we had started with very similar business plans, very similar visions from different sides of the equation. You know he had he had broken down and built back up, leveraging the community of entrepreneurs and coders and technologists. Um, what what you know. I'd, almost, I'd call it a boot camp because that's the vernacular, but it was so much more. And when I spoke to Jim, Jim said, look, Daniel, my shortest program is twice as long as every other boot camp. And my dream is to create a next generation university. And, you know, it was sort of a mind meld where, you know, I felt like his vision for what, what someone could accomplish really matched with our vision for what something could accomplish. Um, and, and, you know, we, we basically merged what he was doing, what, what we had been doing, and then UV funded the combined entity. The, the first funding round, the Series A, was about $18 million. Um, and now Galvanize is um, in five or six cities, um, Denver, Seattle, San Francisco, Boulder, Port Collins, uh, and we're, op- we're, we're planning on opening uh, more sites. Um, and I'd encourage all your visitors to go visit um, a very different sort of engineering education or, or, uh, and, and see what the sort of intersection between learning and doing can be uh, when you take a look at um, ref, you know, reimagining the engineering uh, university. And, and in, in doing this work, yes, and you're just, you, you were just talking about you know, the 
sort of the the usual notion in entrepreneurship where you you write this thing called a business plan. I think they're misnamed, um, but you write this plan and then you start doing something, and something happens that causes you to head off in that other direction. And that's that's actually if the various studies of entrepreneurial thought and and action ratify that, and it's very different from big business planning and reducing. Reducing uncertainty, you can't. You can only reduce uncertainty so much, and you go off in these. In my experience, you go off in these very different directions than what you had in in that planning document. But they're usually they're aligned with the basic values of of what you were talking about. Is, is that- I, I feel I feel very, and I think that's exactly right. And I think one of the, and I think being at traditional institutions uh, that have operated a certain way for so long you forget how hard it is to do something innovative like you did at Illinois or, or at Olin or something else and and you have to go into these situations knowing that things will change but at the same time those first principles about okay how are we going to make this about student outcomes how are we going to connect you know um, create a new learning environment for students and 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 those are the transcendent qualities that get that, that really drive you know the vision, and I think every successful um, entrepreneurial enterprise has a vision. And I think someone like Jim Dieters, who you know created this vision, you know built this vision, um, and then executes against it. Uh, you know, I can't tell you how many twists and turns there are in the road, um, but you know each one, if you're guided by True North, uh, you know as long as as long as you keep that True North in mind. Um, which is student outcomes, uh, you know, I think you, you, you create, you can create some beautiful, beautiful music together. Yeah, and so, and, and, and uh, I wanna, there's a whole piece around accreditation that I want to get to because it's, it's both the, can be the sticking point and, and also the launch point for these things. But, but tell us a little bit more about the galvanized model and where, where things are. You mentioned the number of campuses, uh, what kinds of, um, certificates, degrees, and so forth are being being offered, and 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 what's different about it? Yeah, uh, first of all, um, currently there are uh, three, um, two certificates and a degree program. Uh, there's a data science immersive program, a full stack web development program, and then a uh, master's in data science um, program. Um, what's you know really unique about it is uh, that when you go to, uh, you're, 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 most of your listeners probably haven't been to a galvanized campus, but I would encourage everyone to visit because it's really hard to understand what it is until you actually go. But um, a galvanized campus, uh, at least uh, most of them are approximately fifty to 70,000 square feet. So they're large spaces, generally in standalone buildings. Um, and there are a series of classrooms, which is what you'd expect to see in an educational institution. But there's also a, a co-working space, community space. And that community space is occupied by peop, you know, companies like Google and IBM and uh, startups. So you know, there are 200 startups alongside with your Googles and your IBMs of the world. And you have a, an instructional environment embedded in this you know, technology community space. And it democratizes access because students do their project work next to the companies that might employ them in 
you know, three, six, nine, twelve months going out. And so it's a really unique educational environment where, you know, in the classroom you've deconstructed the um, outcomes required to be successful in, in your career. Uh, and then you're connected with the people who will hire you and make you successful in your career. It's important to note, by the way, that over 90% of the galvanized students already have a bachelor's degree. So they've already gotten you know, a history degree or uh, even a computer science degree somewhere else. So they've gotten the broad base of uh, instruction uh, from another generally traditional university. Um, and, uh, and and they have um, they're using Galvanize to learn a, a reasonably specific skill set, um, and so it really satisfies, I think, sort of the the true goal of sort of liberal arts education, which is to take almost anyone from any environment and um, run them through a course of study, and you know help them achieve a, a job. Um, you know, when you think about our engineering curriculum, though, it's it's takes the best of all worlds. It, it's a T-shaped curriculum model, um, you know, which is an IBM term. Uh, we create. We don't just create, you know, hammers who know how to hammer nails. We create broad-based thinkers. Uh, lots of um, soft skills included in the program. Students are paired up in paired programming. Uh, I'm probably getting about ten things wrong here because I'm not an engineer by training, sure. Sure. but. Uh, you know, this is this is a, a, a just a unique environment, and the results are are incredible. You know, first of all, um, you know, in our in our full stack class, um, you know, you have ninety eight percent of your graduates are, are fully employed with an average salary of seventy three thousand dollars. In our data science class, um, you know, something like a ninety three percent placement rate with an average salary of over one hundred and ten thousand dollars. So, and people are being placed at you know. Great jobs at Facebook, Google, Twitter, um, but also really fun startups. Um, so it's it's a, it's a really great environment, and I encourage everyone to come and visit. Yeah, that's really cool. And I was thinking, but when you were talking about the the cooperative space, and I was thinking about the old model of co op, you know, engineering co op. So and yeah. some schools still have that, but you you went and worked for the company, and so it just seems uh, so interesting in in our day and age that it's. Uh, co-loc or co-locate, you know, it's like work next to um, the company or, you know, be, you know, the the democratization of, but it's still about proximity, but instead of for, it's almost with uh, or or next to um, the, the, the people that you might end up working for. Yeah. You know, I, I joke that it's sort of like the way blacksmiths used to get trained, right? <laughs> you didn't you didn't go to university to learn to be a blacksmith. You went to the smithery and you learned next to you know, uh, and 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 there's a reason there's an apprenticeship model, and I, I, I and it's not perfect for this environment, but that concept of apprenticeship sense of place is actually even more important in this digital age because people need that sense of place, especially in these you know urban cores, um, and Jim talks really eloquently about the role of urban cores in technology development and how you know proximity, physical proximity, is actually even more important um, with, uh, with with technology. Uh, very cool, and and uh, you know so. And I was reading back through some of your articles and press releases from the past, and so in the 
when you were were working on NEU, there there was uh, the the new engineering university, and and then that that kind of combining with and, turn, and turning into Galvanize. Um, there was a, there was an original uh, agreement to work with uh, an already accredited institution. Um, is that a necessary step? To what extent is it important to kind of go out and get that accreditation uh, from an existing player or? or How's how's that accreditation piece work? Because that's something that you know traditional educationists are are concerned with. I, I think it depends on the on the organization. I mean, focusing on Galvanize for a minute, we have a phenomenal partnership with the University of New Haven. Um, you know, Steve Kaplan, who's the president, Dan May, the provost, and and Ron. And, and I, I don't try to pronounce Ron's last name, but uh, the dean of the engineering school have really um, been great partners for Galvanize. And I, and I think, you know, it depends on the type of organization you're trying to start. Um, some of our uh, investments, um, accreditation is critical. Um, you know, if you're talking about a medical school, there's no way you can be a doctor without going to medical school. Sure. Uh, however, if you're talking about something like coding, you know, the, the technical accredited, you know, degree in computer science is frankly less important. There are plenty of self-taught people out there. Um, and, you know, I think as, as the world continues to evolve and to change, you know, people will go seek, you know, accreditation or badges in different ways. And I think that the, we call it double-clicking on the degree, right? The degree will change. Suddenly it's not going to be, hey, this person got a diploma or even this person had 3.9 and took accounting. It's when this person took accounting, they were really good at cost accounting, but didn't know anything about and didn't do really well in T accounting. I mean, so you, you will see kind of people choose um, accredited institution for certain pathways, sure. and people choose unaccredited uh, institutions for other pathways. And I think you know, the, the next generation of the university will, will, you know, the university already accepts that, right? The universities already give certificates. The universities already have night courses, right. weekend courses, et cetera. Uh, they have um, lifelong learning courses. Um, so I don't think this is a revolutionary shift. It's just a shift in, um, you know, how people perceive why they go to school and how they go to school. Well said. So I, so, um, I think in the next segment we want to, uh, take up some of your um, uh, uh, critique of some of the philanthropy and other efforts that are uh, uh, going on. So this is uh, Big Beacon Radio with uh, special guest Daniel Pianco, co-founder and managing director of University Ventures. And in the next uh, segment, we want to ask Daniel about his, his beef with higher ed philanthropy and funding today. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Change is coming to higher education like a freight train, but transforming higher education is challenging, full of risks and opportunities for administrators and faculty members alike. If you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom, if you are starting a brand new school or academic program, or if you'd like to boost your own career, let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. Dave is a leading speaker, author, strategist, trainer, and coach with experience in helping bring successful change to both academic institutions and careers around the globe. To learn more, contact Dave Goldberg today 
at deg at 3joy.com or go to the 3Joy Associates website at www.3joy.com today. If you want to learn how to be a better leader, increase your level of business performance, and motivate your team and organization more effectively, listen for Performing at Your Best, Mindset Evolution with Luis Vicente Garcia. Luis Vicente and his guests will share their expertise and enthusiasm in helping you to succeed. It's combining that drive with business skills that will do just that. Tune in live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. To find out more about our programs, be sure to visit our website at bigbeacon.org. That's bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. So welcome back to Big Beacon Radio uh, with your host, uh, Dave Goldberg, and with Daniel Pianco. And we've been talking about entrepreneurship and uh, funding future funding uh, models for higher education. So, Daniel, you've recently written a number of pieces that have been critical of uh, traditional philanthropy in higher ed. Uh, in a piece in EdSurge, you commented on the $400 million John Paulson paid to rename Harvard's engineering school recently. Um, what's, the, what's the problem with gifts like that? Isn't that a good thing? You know, I think it's I, – I, I'm not sure I'd use the word critical. I think I'd hoped for more. Um, I think that – you know, great entrepreneurs like John Paulson or Sergey Brin or, you know, any Silicon Valley, we have this massive transfer of wealth to not just the top 1%, but the top 0.0001%. And the last time this happened was, um, you know, during the Robin Baron period, the Robert Baron period of the late 19th century. And the great entrepreneurs, the technology entrepreneurs of that time, the Carnegies, the Mellons, the Stanfords, they turned around and built, used their immense fortune that dwarfed anything else to create new forms of higher education. They created the modern research university where they did something no one had ever really done before. They combined teaching and research, which today we can't even think of a university as not having teaching and research, but at the time it was unique, and it was in response to the technology advances of the day and the need for research in a, in a scientific way. And, you know, this had a, a, a massively positive impact on American higher education ecosystem. You had a, a staid school like Harvard suddenly have an MIT pop up down the banks of the Charles River. Now, MIT had been around for a while, but um, this was, the, the, you know, George Eastman of Eastman Kodak basically funded MIT to be the institution is today. Um, Stanford, which birthed Silicon Valley, uh, became a competitor to the Harvards and the Yales of, of the world. 
And I would hope that our generation of billionaires and mega billionaires won't just, you know, donate $400 million to put their name on a building. I, I hope for more from our generation of billionaires. I hope that our billionaires will be as visionary as the Stanfords, the Carnegies, um, the Rockefellers, and create institutions that truly revolutionize uh, our higher education system and, and transform it for the next 100 years. Well, and, and you, in, the, uh, in one of the articles, you, uh, you mentioned uh, Peter Thiel's uh, um, you know, famous uh, fellows program where he pays young people to not go to college, and, and I think you labeled that a false, false choice. What did you mean by, by that? I'd, I'd say more broadly, I think Silicon Valley has been cowardly in its interaction with higher education to date. I mean, Peter Thiel saying, I'm going to give people $100,000 to just drop out. Uh, I, I, look, that works for such a small segment of the population who are probably going to be fine anyway. Um, it doesn't change the fundamental dynamics that our education system doesn't develop uh, incredibly brilliant minds, give them the flower opportunities to have their minds flower in settings like Stanford or, or new environments. And instead to give some Stanford student $100,000 to drop out and pursue their passion, I think it's, it's, it's basically turning your back on a period of time where you could actually do something unique. You have these new technologies. You have uh, internationalization of, of education. You have the price of research plummeting. Um, you have all these different, char- different forces at work, and instead of creating new institutions or renewing smaller institutions that could, could really change how people think about the world, um, you know, someone like Peter Thiel is saying, hey, I'm going to donate millions of dollars to, for people to just drop out and, and, and do something. Um, you know, I think if you look at what uh, the people behind Olin College did, they said, look, the way we're doing traditional education donations isn't working, right? They're trying to solve this engineering problem in our country, and they're donating money, they're building buildings, and nothing's changing. And then the Olin Foundation said that's not, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. And instead of just donating another building, they went out and said, hey, what does a future engineering college look like? We're going to build it ourselves. And they hired an incredible entrepreneur in Rick Miller. They hired, you know, your co-author and others. And they built a different type of engineering school, which is now close to 50% female. The graduates are redefining what it means to be an engineer. And, and they were at the forefront of a movement. I, I believe that in 30 years, people will know Olin College much more than they are the Paulson School of Business. And that's a good thing. And I would hope that the Paulsons, the Teals, the Brins, um, instead of you know adding another decimal point to Stanford's endowment, would look to really do something truly revolutionary. Uh, development officers all over the country are are getting a little bit nervous, but that's okay. And and actually, the, you mentioned the Olin case, and and that's also I, I I like that story. You know, that's sitting at a poker table and taking your last half billion dollars and putting going all in and betting on a new school. There, it's it's actually one of the incredible stories of 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 modern philanthropy to just. To close up shop and and hope that this um, this new school that you're creating will be be worthy of the trust and investment that um, that was was made in it. 
Yeah. So, but you know, I don't. It, it's not fair to say that Silicon Valley hasn't been been active. For example, um, for example, MOOCs are 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 venture funded and and uh, fairly ambitious and and fairly large scale. What um, what are your what are your take? What's your take on the long term potential for you know things like Coursera and edX and so forth? Well, we've been MOOC skeptics for quite some time. If you think about what a MOOC is, you know, what, what, if you think about it, when radios came out, people thought that the uh, radio was going to replace uh, the the university, and people, you know, hundreds of universities went out to get radio licenses. Then when TV came out, you know, people bought TV stations, and then they bought video cassette recorders, and the internet. First, the first iteration of what a MOOC is is really just a way of transmitting a lecture into someone else's home. Yes. And while that's an important innovation, it doesn't, it's not revolutionary. People don't complete MOOCs. They, the, the, the audience for MOOCs ended up being basically people who would otherwise you know, spend their summer going to Stanford, tend to be highly educated, master's degree and above, just learning something extra on their side. And that's not really what, the, when you think about our educational infrastructure and our educational crises, crises in this country, MOOCs really aren't revolutionary. They are trying to become more embedded, and what you're seeing now is they, they woke up, they got all these eyeballs, they got all these people watching basically great lecture series, and they said, wow, we're, we're not making a difference and we're not making any money. Yeah. And they've sort of each of them in different ways have gone more towards, hey, how do we get closer to being accredited or badging or other things? And so I think the jury's out on, the, on, the, on whether they get there. Uh, you know, the nanodegree concept is really interesting in Udacity. So there's a lot of innovation happening now at MOOCs, but the original concept of, hey, we're going to put everything online and see who comes, isn't really revolutionary. It's, no, and it's I, I agree. Yeah, I agree, and I agree with that that point. I, and, and in many ways, the stuff that was interesting from the beginning about MOOCs was sort of marginal and not really paid attention. So, you know, so you have these large classes, and okay, fine, the lectures there are there, big whoop. But on the other hand, there was stuff happening outside the class and kids supporting each other. So, going back to our first segment, and you talking about community, there was community there, but it wasn't intended, and it, and it wasn't really and it wasn't really encouraged. That's yeah, you know, that's one piece, and then and the other piece that is interesting interesting is that MOOCs have formed this institutional realignment of, of these very old organiz- organizations. Universities are now sort of aligned with one or another MOOCs, and the institutional formation is the thing. And yet somehow, as you say, they're kind of they're stuck on the technology of, of, of uh, broadcasting you know, great lectures to large numbers of people. I think that'll change. I think your points are right on. Yeah. And so, okay, so what are some of the brights? I mean, so what are some of the bright spots out there? What's, what's, uh, uh, what things, there, there are little things that are working or they're working in pilot. Uh, what, are some, what are some of the things to be encouraged about? Well, I think the, the most important thing is when I go to, I think, and frankly, I think MOOCs did this. I think there, there are right now two things that are driving change for most university presidents. One is MOOCs and technology broadly defined, and the other is a student debt crisis. And together, uh, those are, are radically shifting how university presidents look at the world. 
And when they come and talk to people like University Ventures and others, the door is open in a way that it wasn't before. So I think, and not just for-profit, non-profit, you know, people like the Gates Foundation getting involved, um, you know, you're seeing a realization in the president's suite of universities that change is coming. They don't know exactly what it is, what the, you know, what the North Star is, right, like when we talked about with Galvanize, but they know change is coming. And I, I think beyond, and, and when you think about how you create innovation and our theory around innovation from within, that is simply the most important thing, is that presidents, their boards, everybody is realizing, hey, we're going to need to change. Now, what models do we pick? And, and I think that's where, you know, I, I can tell you what, uh, there, there are some buzzwords today, project-based learning, competency-based learning, flipped yeah. classroom, and all of those buzzwords are true and correct. I think what's really going to be exciting over the next three, six, nine, twelve years is okay. How do they all sort of work together? You know, what are the what are the mechanisms whereby you know the ecosystem of higher education starts to change and look different? One of the things we talk the most about, and we started the segment with, is every school wants to be Harvard. We call it isopromorphism. That's not a good strategy for a university, because you know what? There's only going to be one Harvard, and there'll probably be only 50 top schools 10 years from now, just like there are 50 top schools today, and that ranking system doesn't change. So if you're the university president at, you know, take your pick, non-top 100 university, um, what makes your university special? Because all the catalogs look the same right now, um, all the goals in terms of research rankings, real estate and raw look the same. You know, how do you create something like a galvanize, which is a highly distinguished student experience that students embrace? Um, and I think that's the real challenge. That's the real exciting thing. And I see it ranging from Elon University saying we're going to become an international university to, yes. you know, something like galvanize, which is re- or Minerva, which is redefining Minerva is redefining what an elite university experience is like. Those are those are really exciting, and they're coming from different places. Yeah, when you know one of the you know, one of the untapped resources in all this are are students themselves. Um, you know, we so as as educators, as investors, we sort of think of think of doing this for the student, and we think of the 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 student as as consumer. But what what's 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 their role in this brave new world? What what can they do to further uh, to further their own uh, education, we've got, and we're we're looking at about two minutes, so we need to keep this a little bit. On, uh, I would, short. I would recommend, yeah, I recommend you read Anya Kamenetz's book called DIY University. Yeah. And in a nutshell, it means students are going to pick their own path in a way they did not before. They will take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and mix it all up, and it will taste different than my university experience or your university experience, but it will be their university experience. And I think that when they take a little bit of Galvanize and a little bit of University of Illinois and a little bit of Minerva, the the blend that people are going to make is going to be magical, and I, I look forward to that day. Yeah. Oh, that's 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 great. That's a, that's a lovely vision, and it we're... Um, Organizations like yours are helping to bring it about. So, um, uh, how can our listeners find out more about 
uh, your thoughts and about uh, higher education disruption and university ventures. Well, we, we have a bi-weekly newsletter um, that if you go to our website, you're welcome to sign up for. Uh, my partner wrote a book uh, called Unbundling uh, the University, which is published and was a, a noted book by, um, uh, it's become a really noted book, and he's, we're happy to do talks, speeches, et cetera. Um, but what's most important for us is, you know, engage with our portfolio companies and go, go visit Galvanize, go visit our medical school, go um, look at our online university system in Africa that, that offers has offered $30 million in scholarships. Um, take advantage of some of the cool technology companies we're funding, like Campus Logic, or encourage your kids to take a ProSky course. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot out there, uh, and, you know, really encourage the, the dialogue to continue. Great. Daniel, thank you so much. Thank you for your important work and, and for helping to uh, disrupt higher education. Uh, you've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with Dave Goldberg. Uh, special thanks to Daniel Pianco, co-founder and managing director of University Ventures. Uh, join us in September when we move to a new time slot, Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, and to a weekly and live format. So we'll see you then. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join David Goldberg soon for another edition. New episodes are heard every month on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.